Uh, good morning, and welcome to the inaugural conference sponsored by the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. Uh, my name is Miguel Centeno. I'm the director of what we uh, call Pierce. It's much easier to say. Um, I want to take this opportunity to thank the staff of the Institute for, for doing this and for basically allowing me to ignore all these incredible logistical details for the last two weeks. And the first person is Jane Bielkowski, who I'm not sure if she's here. She's not. Oh, there she is. Hello. And the second is the Assistant Director of the Institute, Susan Bindig, who is also here. Um, I also wanted to thank uh, the Woodrow Wilson School, in particular Dean Slaughter, for their hospitality and allowing us to have this room. And, of course, all of you for coming. Uh, you're very brave to come on a Friday morning at 9 o'clock. I'm really surprised not to see more undergraduates, but not really. Um, now, Pierce was established to serve as an interdisciplinary and interregional forum for discussion. Um, we hope it would be a place where people with different lenses looking at different places might actually come together and talk and teach each other something. That partly accounts for the incredible hubris of actually calling a conference the state of the world. Um, there is perhaps no grander title. Um, what we mean by it is not to provide a perfect description of the world. That would require something out of the Borges story where the map is literally the size of what is being mapped. Uh, nor do we propose to identify, much less prioritize, all the various problems that are facing the world, uh, famine, war, and the other horses of the apocalypse. Uh, rather, I see us and the academy and universities in general as being able to provide a succinct analysis of global trends, which can then be used to better understand medium-term to long-term uh, tendencies in the globe. So we begin with the obvious question for the state of the world is, what is so different about the 21st century other than 9-11, which we still have to we, we still don't know if that's going to be an epic phenomenon or really, in a sense, define the century. I think what is different is while the 20th century was also the height of the modern, it was also a time of linear oppositional uh, conflicts. Empire versus colony, Britain versus Germany, the Cold War, totalitarian systems versus democratic ones. Now, as complicated as these were, they tended to be, again, fairly linear and fairly uh, 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 straightforward. At the end of 20th century, people saw the end of some of these struggles as leading to this grand Hegelian synthesis, the victory of the market and democracy. Instead, I think what has happened is the rise of new contradictions, which are much more complicated than the kinds of conflicts we had in the 20th century. Uh, that is, and you have to excuse me, I went to graduate school in the, in, the, in the 1980s, and I learned to speak like this. Within each trend, it lies its own negation, uh, what we used to call dialectical relationships, but no one talks like that anymore. Um, what we get are these almost Orwellian patterns uh, we have markets that lead to monopoly controlled by a few corporations. We have democracies that use democratic means to deny citizenship rights to significant minorities. We have wars called in the preservations of peace. Now, trying to work on the state of the world, we identify four large trends, in a sense, that took into view these changes of the 21st century. First is the conflict, the contradiction, between the maintenance of territorial systems of control including the famous Viberian legitimation of violence, with new systems of, of influence and power that do not respect borders. Is there a role for the state in a globalized world? If not, what in heaven's name do we do with them? 
What happens when regions of two states are actually closer than they are to their fellow regions within this sometimes artificially drawn territorial map? The global and the local have come closer. What will happen to the national, particularly when that national, those national institutions have the means to destroy the planet? Secondly, and equally difficult, is the relationship between wealth and inequality. Data indicate that we as a globe are living much better. We are living longer, and especially if we weigh by population to take into account the dramatic improvements in China and India, the state of the world, as measured by the standard UNDP uh, uh, measures, is actually much better, except for a few relatively isolated hellholes. Yet, at the same time, the distance between the rich and the poor, both within states and between states, has increased. Is it possible to have one without the other? Can this growth continue while at the same time generating the same levels of inequality? Put simply, uh, how long will people be happy with transistor radios when they know that plasma TVs are available? A third contradiction comes from the fact that we have simultaneously recognized the right of groups defined by their identities to establish their autonomy, while at the same time declaring universal principles. Woodrow Wilson, blessed be his name here, uh, appeared to favor both in 1919, not recognizing that there might be a contradiction. We seem to have the democratic right to hate each other, but then why not the democratic right to kill each other? If a democratically elected group arises that then takes rights away from a sector of the population, defined by race, ethnicity, or gender, or whatever, is that legitimate? Can we accept that? Or which one will be overriding? The right of autonomy of a particular identity or the universality of a particular right? The last contradiction is perhaps the one closest to home. Word counts of the, of the word empire uh, in popular media would show skyrocketing after 1995, and particularly after 2001. The U.S. comparison to the Roman Empire uh, has now become just a standard trope. I would like to propose that, like Cicero, an Athenian author uh, before him, there is a long discussion about the possibility of remaining an empire while also being loyal to Republican, with a small r, uh, values. Can the world be made safe for liberalism by force? And if so, what form of liberalism? In a recent book, John Gray speaks of two forms of liberalism, one stemming from Locke through Hayek that sees liberalism as leading to enlightenment of a, new, of a unique and universal truth. Another form of liberalism, coming through Hobbes to Isaiah Berlin, sees it more as a modus vivendi, allowing different forms of life. We can see, one could argue, much of current American foreign policy as the first, can that continue, or will a second possibility arise? Finally, on top of these global issues, we also need to add regional diversity. We are all on one planet, but some of us are more on the planet than others, as it were. We can observe similar patterns, but certainly globalization looks very different in Seoul than in Lima. Democracy looks very different in Madrid than in Moscow, not to mention Tashkent. And in terms of inequality, Certainly, globalization looks very different from the Lomas of Chapultepec and Ciudad de Sacuayotl in Mexico City. Now, the academy has always been divided between the foxes and the hedgehogs, the foxes who know a lot of things and the hedgehogs who know one thing, but a very big thing. Similarly, globalists and theorists often diverge in every epistemological way from those who focus on particular time and place. What we seek today is to look at these four contradictions 
while taking into account both the fox and the hedgehog in a sense. We have asked the speakers to address these issues in broad global strokes. We have then asked the commentators to explicitly be provincial and tell us how they play in their specific regions. Now, we hope that all these various contradictions and, and comparisons don't lead to confusion. Rather, perhaps in such a dialogue over the next 36 hours, we can come up with a succinct form of the state of the world that will allow us to start thinking about how to preserve it and how to improve it. And on that note, let me introduce uh, the dean of the school who teaches uh, students how to save the world and improve it, uh, the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, <laughs> Dean Anne-Marie Slaughter. Thank you. Nothing like being introduced in the context of how to improve the world. Um, so it's a real pleasure to be at the inaugural, inaugural uh, peers conference. This is something that uh, has been uh, in the planning uh, since uh, peers was created last year. And it's an incredible testament, above all, to Miguel, uh, as well as uh, to Susan and to Jane, uh, how quickly uh, he has made this actually come together as more than a vision on paper, but a concrete two days of what looked like fabulous debate. The school is particularly delighted because we are a co-sponsor uh, of peers with the university, and it is part of my conception of the school as a collective asset for the entire university to be able to put together school faculty with faculty across the university uh, in this wonderful center. The aim was to uh, make the various parts of the university come together. Uh, as with many universities, uh, Princeton has been subject to centrifugal forces, less, I think, than many, but nevertheless, uh, we have lots of different centers. And the point of peers was to make uh, the sum, the whole uh, larger than the sum of the parts. And Miguel has just done a superb uh, job. He has uh, already managed to fund courses and research projects and to bring together uh, an occasionally fractious executive committee <laughs> of some eight uh, faculty from across the university really thinking about how Princeton uh, as a whole can promote uh, the integration of international and regional studies. Which I don't think I have to tell many of you. Is, uh, even if we study the same things, we study them differently and often uh, in different silos. Miguel's already talked about uh, the various ways we could talk, uh, think about the state of the world. My uh, role for the next few days is going to be to listen and to enjoy. But as he says, it's a time to think about the state of the world when in some ways uh, the world is moving beyond states. I would think of that in three uh, ways, briefly. The first is moving to the regional in ways that, are no, that make what happens in regions absolutely central for anyone who thinks of themselves as a foreign policy person generally. The Middle East is probably the best example, long the province of Middle East experts. <coughs> At this point, it is impossible to think about American foreign policy, global security, uh, a whole conflict broadly without knowing much more about the Middle East not necessarily becoming uh, versed in the languages and the history the way uh, scholars of the region are, but much more so than I think, uh, was previously true, ex with the possible exception, of course, uh, of the former uh, Soviet Union. 
So there, uh, it is a, it's a wonderful time to bring together scholars who are expert in the region to talk to those uh, scholars who look more broadly at international economics or at security or international institutions. Second, the move to the supranational. Miguel talked about the global and the local, and in his vernacular, that, that's the way uh, you would address those issues. In mine, as an international lawyer, you would think about the role of supranational institutions, international organizations, there's a difference but not worth going into here, uh, versus national governments. We only need one example. Uh, if the United States is going to get out of Iraq uh, politically, if not militarily, without either a bloodbath bath or a debacle, it's going to be because of the UN and the UN's mediation uh, with regard to the elections. That's a, uh, something that you could not have said in 1989. You might not have been able to say in 2001, but uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately, from my point of view, the, the vital role of the United Nations is being recognized, not sufficient alone, uh, but uh, necessary. And finally, and dear to my heart, uh, the move beyond the unitary state. In other words, the move beyond uh, a world in which states are acti interacting with one another primarily as unitary actors. We are looking uh, at networks of government officials in the financial arena, in the military uh, arena, uh, in increasingly the social arena, uh, who are themselves acting on the international stage, who are combating the networks of criminals, who are interacting with the networks of non-governmental organizations and corporations uh, in a new form of global governance that itself has to interact with traditional international organizations and traditional national states. So in those three ways, uh, we're talking about the state of the world, and the state of the state, uh, but looking at the ways uh, states are being supplemented by supranational uh, entities, uh, by regional actors, and by subnational entities. I look forward to the day.